This is episode 112 with Curtis McGrath. G'day legends and welcome to Your Life of Impact, where we connect with world-class athletes and coaches, health experts and enthusiasts, inspiring entrepreneurs and community leaders, all to teach you how to tap into your inner excellence. I'm your host, Brett Robbo, and I'm extremely grateful you're joining us today on your impactful journey. Have you ever listened to a podcast or had a conversation with someone and felt like you were watching a movie? That's what a lot of this chat felt like with Curtis McGrath, who would have to be one of the most humble guys I've crossed paths with. Curtis McGrath, OAM, is an Australian paracanoist and Paralympic gold medalist who took up canoeing competitively after having both of his legs amputated as a result of a mine blast whilst serving in the Australian Army in Afghanistan. His story is epic, and I love the detail he goes into in the lead-up to his accident in this episode, and I really wanted you guys to get a feel for what his job entailed and some of the finite details, and that's why I let him dive into that detail and question him around that detail. Hence the feeling of kind of being tuned into a movie through the first half of this podcast. It even gets a bit gory, a bit less than 20 minutes in. So if you've got a weak stomach, what a great way to move through that feeling. (laughs) I honestly could have spoken to Curtis for hours more, as with all the guests. And I know there's so many more parts to his life and his story that we could have covered. But I reckon you'll get a real good feel for it all in this one and should learn a lot from his mindset and his attention to detail. One of the things we chatted about offline that we didn't cover in this episode is a kayak paddle Curtis did from Sydney to Brisbane, which is approximately 900 kilometers, completing the journey in three weeks. They paddled 40 or 50 or sometimes 60 Ks each day and then pulled into a little beach camping Get up and do it all again the next day. It was to raise money and awareness for a veterans charity called Mates for Mates that supports wounded, injured or ill current and ex-servicing defense personnel and their families. So a massive effort from Curtis and the group that he went with and an important and great cause. So a huge shout out to the legends at Mates for Mates. I've linked up their details in the show notes too. If you want to head over there, check them out, support them in any way. This is a long episode, which I love, so I won't keep you any longer. We'll dive straight in, except I do have one thing to say. For all you Apple users out there, and you know who you are, I'd be abundantly grateful for your rating and review on iTunes to help keep this podcast alive. Thanks, legends. Now let's hear from the legend himself, Curtis McGrath. Curtis McGrath, welcome to Your Life of Impact. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's an absolute honor. I'm extremely grateful that you've 
joined me today. And we've actually been connected through the mob, the Paralympic mob. We were both uh, teammates in Rio at the Rio Paralympics, but this is actually the first time we've ever met. Yeah, it's nice to be reconnected and, and also, you know, through the, the, the linkage of the mob is, is nice as well. It's a pretty strong connection, isn't it, when you think about Paralympic sport and the mob that they, they created for that and that Paralympic community and family. Yeah, you know, it's uh, the word mob obviously comes from the, the Aboriginal sort of term for the group and it was... You know, something that Danny DeToro, I think, came up with, and you know we've used it as our sort of term to to bring everyone in and, and make feel you know included and and the wider community as well of uh, disabled sports and and uh, how we can sort of refer to each other. And we're going to talk about your Paralympic experience because I believe Rio was your debut for the Paralympics there, mm-hmm. and it was a pretty successful one. And we're going to loop back around to that. But I guess for everyone listening, it'd be really cool to understand well. How did you even become eligible to become a Paralympian? Because you were in the Defence Force as a combat engineer. Yep, is that that's right. right. Yep. What is a combat engineer? So a combat engineer's official title is, or official sort of role is to provide mobility and deny mobility. So that can be anything from you know building bridges, roads, you know, infrastructure items like uh, water or but also to deny mobility which is you know defensive measures trenches felling trees in a certain way that make them sort of interlock along a road make them really difficult to remove but also you know demining and a few other things like finding improvised explosive devices which is what, what I was doing in Afghanistan as well. So a very large sort of role. It's a role that has become more and more relied upon in the way in which conflict is, is, is dealt over in the Middle East arena, especially because it's generally a, a guerrilla warfare and, and you don't really want to walk in the, an area where the insurgents have been because they generally leave behind a, a bit of a nasty surprise in the event of an IED. And so your job is to find those IEDs and to clear them out so other people can get through yeah that's correct so the basic sort of construct of patrols were was a, a combat engineer section or brick out front and we'd search the way clear for the rest of the patrol and that that's sort of the the style in which we've had to adopt around the middle east arena and but also the other sort of role that we do in the conflict like Af- in afghanistan was to do clearance patrols. So we're looking for cached weapons and, and items that can be used as an IED componentry. So it's like a big Easter egg hunt. It's actually, once you find one, you generally find more and more and more. And that's taking the fight away from the insurgency so they don't have the capability to fight. They go back to being farmers and doctors and mechanics and whatever else they were doing at the time before. So it's very rewarding when we get when we start to find these things because we know that the, the capability of the, the enemy is being obliterated really. Mm. So what happens when you do find it? So you said that you go out in front and you've got these big metal detector things, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it's very sort of basic, rudimental way of, of of searching for something you know looking predominantly for metal signatures with our metal detectors um also using our sort of training and in, in, in constructing a threat picture and you're figuring out what's ahead of us and ground signs and things like that so you know we we, we come across that metal signature we we sort of link up all our you know our training together and, and sort of identify and 
we we start to sort of lead lead into the the idea or where the signature is most strong and using you know very very subtle measures like a paintbrush and, and very gradually pushing away the dirt as we do and, and generally we we expose a little bit and then we identify yeah this is pretty almost a hundred percent that we think it's an IED and then we we call up the, the explosive ordnance disposal team which is the EOD they're the guys in the bomb suits and we we call them to come out and, and deal with it if they can sometimes they're otherwise occupied in another part of the, the battlefield so we have to deal with that ourselves and, and, and generally we we blow them in place or uh, remove them in the safest way possible and sometimes we can pull them out of the ground without them going off obviously not by hand we, we tie a bit of rope around them or uh, something like that just to remove them you get a bit sort of show a bit of you know ingenuity in, in terms of trying to get these things out but it can be pr- pretty you know hairy sort of situation because up until we get there, you don't know it's there. So mm. there's obviously a, a number of different signatures that'll, you know, alert you that there could be something in the area. I, you know, some some debris or some blast craters. Uh, one one occasion there was a, a blown up Hilux Ute next to the next to the road. So that's a pretty good indication that something's happened here before. Yeah, and and, and once the the EOD guys you know do their thing, it's generally we start again and and off we go again so it's a bloody risky job yeah dangerous yeah considered one of the most dangerous jobs in the world you could say but it's a job that you know is very much required and it's one of those things that we 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 sort of take don't take that responsibility lightly because as an engineer we're we're trained for 11 12 months specifically on this type of training this type of task so there's a long process and you know some of the other roles like infantry and things like that they just continually train in combat you know combat fighting you know getting into a contact so whereas we're specifically training on the IED identification and and search methods. So can you take us to the day or was it night when when you found one or it kind of found you yeah so it was uh, we're on a, a five-day patrol to re-establish a checkpoint that had um, been uh, disbanded by the afghan national police they'd been having a really hard time in in this this area fighting with the insurgents in the, in the area and this checkpoint was up on top of uh, a very high hill overlooking two valleys that intersected each other and those valleys led off to different provinces so deemed as a very strategic point and the insurgents were using these valleys to bring men and supplies into Uruzgan to, to make it easier for them to, to continue on the fight. And uh, so we, we pushed into the area and as I was just saying about the, the blown up Hilux that was actually on the way into this, this checkpoint area and you know, we found an ID sure enough about 100 metres down the road from it. So very long days, it was probably about 45 degrees each day. Uh, we're working about two and a half, three thousand meters above sea level. You know, wearing approximately about you know, 15, 20 kilos with a kit on us, and and you know, out the front, you know, walking along, carrying a metal detector and a weapon as well. So it's uh, hard work, and, and we were working probably about 13 to 14 hours a day. And we had a really good patrol commander on this occasion, and he he made sure that you know the engineers were getting all the rest that they could get during the evening. So the, the infantry would do all the guard duty because. As we're moving into this area, the infantry were just sitting in the back of the, the vehicles because it's the safest place to be. Um, and, and you don't, we don't need guns on the ground or men on the ground that just wandering about because it's sort of unsafe. So you're better off 
keeping the guys in the in the vehicles and making sure that they're kept safe because those those Bushmasters vehicles are incredibly safe and very well constructed in, in terms of resisting a blast if they do go over something. Anyway, we, we moved into the area and we it took us on the third day. We actually got up on top of this uh, feature uh, where the checkpoint was and, and that was because of the, the time that it was taking us to search through this area and the amount of IDs that we were finding. I think we found three or four just in the lead into this this checkpoint and one of the other issues is the actual access to the checkpoint was was blocked by a very very large boulder this boulder was on the main road and it was a on a, like a steep cliff so you couldn't couldn't get around it so we had to sort of double back and find another way in and, and we did and eventually and that was on the end of the the third day and uh, as we got up onto the, the checkpoint, we sort of surveyed the area and we, we noticed that the, the defensive measures, the sandbags and the amount of rubbish and barbed wire that was laying around to sort of d- distract or deter us from entering the area. Obviously, our, our metal detectors find metal things, so they were, were going off all over the place. So as well as all that work and that, that time and the heat and the altitude, we were probably doing about three, 4,000 squats a day picking up these bits of rubbish because... You don't know what's under this bit of rubbish, so you've got to find the rubbish, put it in your pocket, search it out, um, wave your metal detector over again, nothing there. Okay, a little step forward, and, and it's a very monotonous and, and repetitive process, but you have to be as, as safe as you could be. And Yeah, like I was saying, we're, we're serving, surveying, and, and the, the insurgents sort of pushed over everything and, and made, a, made a bit of a mess of the place, and, and, and it was tricky. We searched in, in the, all the vehicles, and we put them into a harbour approximately about four or 500 metres away from the actual checkpoint itself, but in an area where we were defending in a defensive position if we were to get shot at that, that evening or, or anything, which we do every time we... we we pull up at, at, at night time because get shot at we didn't get we, shot at okay. no but we establish ourselves in a way in which if we do mm. we we can respond in a, a very aggressive and a very well how do i explain this in a way in which we don't have to move we can just mm. stay okay. there and fight and we can you know defend ourselves and, and never ever which way we can and which is um, it, it's that's that's the whole job of the patrol commander and also the infantry specialists, um, like the the, um, the infantry commanders that are with us as well, and, and they sort of do that, and we we just dig trenches and and put up the defensive sort of things. But uh, yeah, and then on the fourth day, we sort of searched around a bit more, and we had a, a quite a large group of. Afghan National Army with us that we were implement to implement them into the checkpoint and we searched them in quite early in the morning about eight eight o'clock in the morning you know we're up as soon as the sun goes comes up and in bed pretty much as soon as that sun's twilight so it's I remember putting them in and, and then we got approval to, to blow up that that big boulder that was blowing up uh, blocking the road and just due to the fatigue and, and when you're fatigued you don't really communicate as, as fluently as, and understand each other as well uh, you sort of have this sort of kind of small assumption on, on, on every task uh, and you know 99.9% of the time those assumptions are right uh, especially when you're as fatigued as what you are but I went over to a different boulder that was on that the road that we'd been using to go to and from the vehicles the, on the track which we were using 
and I was just sitting there. It was a large boulder, but it wasn't as big as and, and as sort of it wasn't in the way. I should say is, but it would still block a, a Humvee vehicle going through there. So I was just sitting there by myself, and all, all the other guys were down at the other the main boulder on the main uh, entrance road. And I was sort of wondering why everyone was not there, and you know. And then my mate Pitch came over. He was another engineer, part of my brick. And I, I should go back. A brick is a four man four man group usually, and it's got your uh, uh, your brick commander. And then, and then three privates or sappers, as we call them, as engineers. And I was the the second in command of that brick. And then, but also the first aid, the specialist in first aid. I wasn't a medic, but I was a specialist in first aid for for that that brick. And pitch came over to me and said, you know, what are you, what the hell are you doing? I was like, oh, I thought this was it. No, nah, mate, it's the other one. I was like, oh yeah, cool. So I bundled up my stuff, and we'd already searched through this area. I specifically on this path I'd searched that myself and I was wandering along and like I was saying before about communication pitch I uh, wasn't aware that I'd walked like got up straight away and w- walked off and he was you know throwing rocks down the hill or something something mundane or a little bit more stimulating than looking at the dirt so and because of that 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 put a bit of separation between us which is very good uh, very, very good in, in the event of you know, something going wrong. And, and when we do move, you know, there's 10 to 15 metres between each person in case one, one person or gets blown up or shot at. It's, it's not just, you know, we're not all together and group bunched up and, and an easy target. So because of that separation, there was, you know, because of that time, there was a good separation between us. And I was just wandering along and I was probably halfway and I was right in the middle of the checkpoint, sort of walking through. Yeah, and, and then the, I stepped right on it. And it was, like I said before, it was on the channel where I, I searched and it happened to be about five, six metres away from where we had a break the day before and we're just chilling next to it. So, and it was very well hidden, pretty much a no metal content IED. Yes, it had batteries in it, but the batteries were way off to the side, like three or four meters away, and I just didn't put my metal detector anywhere near that part. So yeah, I just completely missed it. And the, the type of soil as well had a bit to do with it. We're in a sort of granity sort of place. So once you smash up granite, it changes its density dif- difference in the dirt compared to sand or, or mud or clay. So it has a different sort of feel. So if, if anyone knows about digging a hole, you dig a hole and try to put the dirt back in, you won't have exactly the same ground level, so it'll give you ground sign. But in granite, it, it doesn't doesn't offer that uh, uh, that feature to you. So, yeah, just completely missed it and stepped right on it. And it's not like the movies where you hear a click and then you've got you know half a second to change your step. It's not like that at all. And like one minute I'm walking along, and next minute I'm on my back looking at the sky, and there's rocks and dirt and debris falling from the ground. So. I don't remember the blast at all. I don't remember my rifle being snapped in half. I don't remember my metal detector just being blown to bits. Yeah, so what what I do remember, it's like dark and, and dusty and there's rocks and debris falling from the sky and I sort of wander and confuse what, what's going on. And I sort of get up on my elbows and look down and I can see my, my legs are completely gone. They're, they're completely gone. You could see that from where you were? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could see the blast crater next to me. I could see the blood coming straight out of me and you know, going into the blast crater and filling that up. There was, it was quite a rapid blood flow, as, as you would expect. And it wasn't until I saw my legs that, that the pain and I realised what, what was going on. So obviously dazed and confused but being so close to an explosion as well has something to do with that. 
Yeah, and, and like I tried to stop it with my hands and I, I managed to do that. And then I remembered we had you know, tourniquets on our body armor and in our pockets. When you were trying to stop it with your hands because mm. you'd lost parts of both legs, yeah. how, what were you do we, were you grabbing one hand on each leg or no, was, was one worse than the one, other? One was, my left leg was, was squirting a lot faster than I, than I realised of what I could see. But apparently my right leg was a lot more damaged. I had quite a large wound up the back of my right leg, almost to the bottom of my bum. And I, like, I put my hand on that and, and I reckon I touched my femur. So you, you put your hand yeah, on your I grabbed it, went yeah, in into the wound. And, and touched your bone. Yeah, so pretty, pretty hectic. Mm. And you know, I tried to put the tourniquet on, unraveled it, and tried to put it on, but because I lost the weight of my legs, every time I got off my elbows, I would fall backwards. And like I was saying before, that, that separation between me and, me and Pitch, that 10, 15 metres, he was not injured. You know, he had a perforated eardrum because obviously it's loud mm. and he had a bit of a cut on his face. But other than that, he was uninjured. And, you know, I, I knew that I was in trouble and, and uh, I, I yelled at him to come over and, and put on my tourniquets. And, and he did that. Like he come running in and, and put one on. And by the time he got the first one on, uh, he put the first one on my right leg. The rest of the patrol or the... the the search group had got to me as well as a few security guys or infantry guys I should say were with them and, and they sort of came across me lying on the dirt you know, missing some limbs and, and bleeding out and, and pitches you know doing work on and trying to put the tourniquets on me so I, I often you know think about you know that that event when you you know one minute you everyone's all good and then next minute you know someone's about to die in front of them and and that trauma that I was going through is is theirs too you know they're they're in just as much shock as i am and they might not be in that much pain but that the whole shock of the situation mm. is is quite horrific so yeah the, how did the guys yeah how did they handle that situation very well i thought you know the, the actions in which they did you know other is the reason why i'm here so i think um their speed and their their ability to follow my instructions with the first aid was yeah was you know so you Amazing. were giving them instructions. Yeah, that's right. So as they were putting on the, the second tourniquet, I could feel myself going into shock due to the blood loss and you know the signs and symptoms are quite evident when, when you're going in that and you can see it on someone as well. You know, short, sharp breaths and, and breathing really fast and a little bit of lightheadedness and, and things like that. So you, you start to think like, oh, I, I need the next step in first aid and, and that was for me uh, and, and my capability was the IV fluid and was talking them through that process and trying to get them to, to do all that, which is obviously quite a tricky thing to do, mm. especially if you haven't put in an IV line before or a cannula. And this is because you were the senior first aid yeah, person, for, for right? the group for that, that was that group. yeah for that yeah. group that was uh, away from the vehicles there mm. was another equivalent to me in the infantry guys and he was on his way from the vehicles with the stretcher mm. and the patrol commander and trying to make sure that you know getting them to do all that as fast as they could because I knew my situation was was not great and they you know they were getting it all ready and everything and then and then Cordy uh, he was the infantry commander that was with the the security sort of detachment with us and he he took over the scene of the IV and you know the guys were like oh what do we do now because you know you want to be around and help but and especially in a situation like that but once someone's taking part of taking that job away you sort of feel helpless mm. so I said oh, boys I need some morphine eh? that'd be real good so they you know they followed my instructions like to the letter you know the amount of morphine because this was before we had 
EpiPens. So, you know, they had to draw it up and, and get all that done. And all the while, the, you know, the patrol commanders, you know, talking on the radio back to the Tarrant base, the, which is where the helicopters come from, to get that helicopter there as fast as we can. And they, they're doing everything right. And the, the, the process obviously was a little bit longer because we were so remote. We were, were a long way out from, from the main base uh, where, the, where the choppers were. So uh, the time... Um, was something that was going to be an issue and as things are happening all the time in this instance or this stage it feels like everything's going to be okay because you you're progressively doing the next step in the mm. first aid and then when they laid me onto the, the the stretcher and they're carrying me along and you know it's a little bit of not much is happening but you're moving towards the chopper so you know mm-hmm. things are progressing so you're are you saying that from from now or is that how your mindset was in that moment like you were thinking all right sweet they've done the right thing i'm going to be okay okay now we're moving towards the chopper at least yeah. the chopper's coming i'm going to be yeah, okay maybe subconsciously i think mm. it's one of those maybe a hindsight thing now looking back on that but at not at one po- not at any point up until the, up until when the the guys lay me down uh, did i think i was going to die and and, and because nothing was happening it just okay. felt like the waiting and when i was getting carried on on the stretcher the 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 um you know we were joking about losing brand new boots and and things like that and having a bit of a bit of a laugh obviously as much as you can in that situation just trying to subdue the the trauma that's going through everyone and you know i i, I was getting carried along and i knew my legs were gone they weren't coming back and, and, and that's when i said you know you guys will see me in the paralympics so yeah, a comment that you know i i don't know where it came from i don't know why i, I said it and but I, I put it down to knowing my sort of situation and i was a pretty fit and active guy before i got injured and i'd always been enjoyed sport and, and you know i had, had saw this opportunity for what it kind of was only like 20 minutes after getting injured so brilliant i love that so here you are no legs boys are joking that you've lost your brand new boots because they've actually been blown off and you have the capacity and audacity to say you're going to see me in the paralympics yeah and like how do i feel follow that up you know (laughs) like i said you know a bit of bit of dark humor a bit of you know conversation about what's possible now and mm. to take away that that trauma from what or subtract a little bit of that trauma that was happening to everyone because you know it wasn't just my trauma yeah. were you in pain at that stage or was there so much um, morphine in there, you there was you... quite a bit of morphine in me but at the same time like i i felt in pain every time i moved mm. and i was getting carried on a stretcher on a you know, pretty uh, like a goat track so uh, it wasn't the most smoothest ride but uh, you know the, the boys did a, a remarkable job of getting me there without stopping so a good 600 meter stretcher carry was um, on, on a slope is uh, pretty pretty tricky to do so uh, yeah and then, and then uh, they laid me down next to the vehicles and that's when the, the waiting began and, and you know nothing was happening mm. just had to wait for this chopper you know the patrol commander's doing everything he can to find out where this chopper is and the choppers are actually going as fast as they possibly can to get to me because of the the situation and uh yeah that's when i thought i was going to die like that's that was a situation where i was you know i knew i was in trouble and i think you know morphine had, had a little bit to do with how i was feeling as were you know a little bit lethargic and, and and tired and in hindsight looking back on that that's probably a combination of blood loss and, mm. and morphine and so when you think 
that you're going to die. Mm. What what were you thinking? Were you thinking about the people in your life? Were you thinking about yourself? What was going through your mind when you thought, maybe I'll die? Yeah, I, I didn't have like this you know, flashback of all the regrettable situations in my life. I, you know, was thinking about the people in my life and, you know, I'd written these letters on my laptop and I, I pulled in one of the boys and I said, look, you're going to have to go into my laptop and print off these letters and, um, you know, letters saying that I wasn't coming home and, um, you know, letters to important people, my mum and dad and my brother and sister and my, my girlfriend at the time and who's now my fiance. So we've been through a lot and, and you know, she, those letters and, and the, the, that feeling of, not being able to say goodbye is, is pretty hard. So yeah. So you had pre, pre-written those letters. Is that something that they encourage you guys to do before you go out on the missions like what I, you did? I can't remember them encouraging us, but I had a friend that had been on a rotation to Afghanistan a few before me and, and he had recommended doing it. And I said, oh, yeah, well, that rotation, they lost like three, four guys. So I was like, oh, maybe, it, maybe it's a worth, worthy sort of situation, but it might have jinxed me, who knows, because none of the other boys had done it and they came back all right. But, but um, you came back. Yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> so. How does it feel to write those kind of letters? Like that's, um, that's pretty deep. I think for me, I, I wrote them quickly and I wrote them not with too much thinking in it, you know, very to the point I am... You know, my partner Rachel, she she always tells me, you know, to be a little bit more emotional and have a little bit more feeling and, and you know, using adjectives a bit more. But I think uh, I was just to the point, you know, and writing them as if you know you'll see them next next week or something like that, mm. and then you put them away and you don't don't refer to them at all, and mm. you know. Y- you never want to think that you'd have to send them and you'd never want to think that, you know, they were the last words that they read from me. But mm. at the same time, you want to give them something. Mm. So what did your, what did the guys say when you said you're going to have to go on my laptop and send these letters? Oh, yeah, they were like, yeah, 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 all good, but you're going to get through this. Like, mm. You're going to get there. The choppers are on their way, like everything. You know, they're, they're being as encouraging as they can be because they're in the same situation as me, really. They're unaware of what's happening mm. uh, outside of what they can see maybe maybe brick commander knows a little bit more but the patrol commander is standing next to me so he's a part of this situation too and you know, i i remember seeing the uh, you know people crying and you know being ca- taken away from the situation because at the time i wasn't crying i don't think i was crying at that's that point but when i was obviously going through the letter situation and trying to get relay that sort of the uh, the necessity for them them to be done that was you know pretty pretty heavy but you know people are being traumatized by what mm. was happening around them and it's as equally as rough on them as as me i like how you you share that um or you acknowledge that it's a shared experience of that trauma because i think too often people only think of the victim and the victim might only think of themselves but the ripple effect of that trauma is lifelong for everyone and what about for your family and your fiance you know does that does that still ring true with them the that that traumatic experience is it something that still arises within them i don't think so and i could be wrong but what what i what i see in them is you know they're pretty happy with how things have turned out mm-hmm. and as am I I've 
managed to take every opportunity and to sort of prove to everyone that was involved in that that um, I am still capable, I'm still me, and I'm still able to do the things that I enjoy. And yeah, I might not be able to go for a run every day, which is probably a lie, I probably can. I do have <laughs> running blades in the shed, but they're just collecting dust at the moment. But, uh, you know, doing things like that shows them that I'm, you know, still out there and, and capable of doing things that you know, most other people don't get the opportunity to do. I probably should have asked a question before that one, but obviously you got on the chopper and, you know, you don't just then get legs and voila. You, yeah, you've obviously yeah. been through a lot of surgeries and extra trauma and, you know, physically and mentally through that time. Yeah, the rehab is a long one. You know, I was brought back. I went through like a few different hospitals in Afghanistan because they spread out the specialists and then they took me to, to Germany. Uh, to a, an American hospital where I was sort of put in ICU and made ready to fly long distance. An Australian Defence Force trauma transition team came over to get me ready to fly back and flew back into Brisbane. Um, was put into Royal Brisbane Hospital for about five weeks, I think it was. Had like my last big surgeries there. Um, so to close up all the wounds and to make my limbs as ready as they could be for prosthetics. And that's uh, quite an art. It's quite a, a tricky thing to do because, you know, legs aren't meant to be pressure on in the way in which pr- prosthetics do that. You know, we're, we're built through a long, long millions of years worth of evolution to, to give us this, this body that we have. And I got uh, some, some skin grafts and things like that for that bit, especially for that big wound on the back of my leg, some, some burns that were on my arm and hands. And a few, I had a, quite a few broken bones in my wrist. So fixing them all up and, and getting that ready. And then I was transferred over to Greenslopes Private Hospital where I sort of finished off um, my hospital time. And um, you know, the people at Greenslopes were, were really, um, really good. They, they sort of decked out my room and uh, lots of physio gear. I had my own physio plinth and Swiss balls and rollers. And I had, a, uh, what do they call them? Kind of like a bike, but for your arms, an arm crank. Um, so I could do some cardio work because during my time in hospital, especially that that initial stage, you know, I dropped a lot of weight. I got injured at about 95 kilos and I dropped down to about 65, 62 wow. kilos in hospital. So you're really tall. How tall? Are you your natural height Yeah, now I am now. Days? So, uh, you know, before injury I was 193 centimetres and right now I'm about, about that within, you know, within a centimetre. So, and that's sort of you want to make sure that your prosthetics are about the same length because mm. it changes your gait if you go outside a sort of a bracket area. Yeah, so I was healing a lot faster than the doctors were expecting as well in terms of my wound healing. And you want to close up all your wounds before you put prosthetics on just because the tearing and the pressure and everything, it creates a bit of a problem uh, and infection as well because you know, my legs are in silicon and then they're wrapped in carbon fibre. So they're it's uh, not the most comfortable uh, feeling, especially in Queensland heat. So yeah, I was he- healing really well and getting stronger and fitter and putting a little bit more weight on. And um, three months went by and I was injured right in the middle of my six-month tour in Afghanistan. So I had three months in the hospital and I had a, had set a goal whilst being in there to, to be out walking when the guys got home from Afghanistan. And that was a a goal that sort of kept me driven and you know at the start of my rehab and hospitalized doing that five ten minutes um, and, and really didn't like it because I wasn't capable of doing things mainly because of pain and you know, being unbalanced and, and unaware of the, the possibility of what I could do 
And then by the end of hospital, I was doing like eight, nine hours a day because there's nothing else to do in hospital. So uh, I probably should have read some books, but, um, (laughs) (laughs) but, uh, you know, I wanted to be stronger and, you know, back to what I, what I was before and got fitted for prosthetics on, I think it was the 28th of November or just before then. I think the guys got back on the 28th, so it must've been just before them and, that process of prosthetics is, is a one that you don't understand until you have to go through mm. it. Um, and you could understand it if you watch it or anything like that, but it's a, a lot of trial and error. So they make a, a socket out of a, a very hard plastic and they can mold that with a heat gun uh, to, to move in and out where you feel uncomfortable and you know, trying to get the balance right. And, you know, I walk in using different muscles than I used to now. I use a lot of lower back and, and glutes. So, that, that changes your body shape and obviously uh, those muscles aren't made for that, that movement so they get tired very quickly when, in the initial stages. So trying to get that strong and, and looking, you know, looking to, to be up and balanced on all different types of ground. I have a bit of, still have a bit of trouble with sand just because mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, a, it's a hard surface to, to walk on let alone w- with prosthetics. So mm. trying to sort of figure all that out. Did you have... I'm just as you're saying that I'm picturing myself I've spent a lot of time with prosthetists I've coached a lot of leg amputees over the years and there was one guy Nath and we were working through his early stages of rehab he was in defence as well actually but lost his leg in a um, getting towed by a jet ski yeah Nath Whittington yeah yeah so I coached him for a few years in Canberra that's right he came up and stayed with you and did some paddling right yeah yeah. yeah. I I think I was away oh right during that time and and he he tried hard and he, and he tried so hard he hurt his shoulder, yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, so, I remember he came back yeah. to run and with a busted shoulder. <laughs> but I remember, so my question to you is around your, the stump, pain and care. Did you ever get neuromas or anything like that? Because I remember with Nath sitting in with uh, one of the neurologists and these neuromas at the end of his stumps had formed and he had to have injections and there was an ultrasound and I'm watching on the big screen, the guy was ultrasounding his stump find this big neuroma and then put this needle this massive needle into the end of his stump and in, to inject that and to kill off that and just think oh but there was so much stump care and everything like you talked about yeah you don't realize until i've been lucky because it. that sounds horrible I, I haven't had that did My, you ever have phantom pain i have a little bit you know where at night time especially when when your senses are sort of not as distracted mm. so you know lying in bed i can feel like tingling um if i think about it now i can i can feel it but i i don't have phantom pain as badly as some of the other guys i know and you know they've got constant pain in their limbs and i get very sharp and short phantom pain and it'll be very sporadic it might be you know i'll be sitting watching a movie or something like that mm. and it'll just feel like someone hit the middle of my foot with a hammer and then but it's there and it's gone like right. there's no it's not a long long pain it's very short sharp it, it, it makes you jump but and then it'll go away so uh, i've been very lucky and my prosthetist always said that the surgeons did such an amazing job mm. with the the skin folds and the scar lines the scar lines have a lot to do with sort of nerves because um, scar tissue is quite tough and it and it uh it can be really sensitive and, and if you put pressure on them in the wrong way, especially with bones and, and your whole body weight, it can tear mm. those, and that, that hurts quite a lot. And I had a, a bit of an issue with the nerve that was running through over the end of my tibia on my left leg, and that caused a heck of amount of pain, but just because the weight and the way it was, was fitted uh, on me, 
it would like flick over the nerve mm. and it would I'd walk a hundred meters and it just felt like someone was cutting my leg open. Mm. So two weeks went by after I got fitted and I was like, no, nah, I, I, I can't do this. Like I can't learn, I can't get better. I can't do anything because I can only walk a hundred meters and I'm done mm. for the whole day. And that, that's not learning to me that there's, there's more of an issue. And the prosthetist took me back in, re reevaluated the, the socket and the next socket the next day I like stood up threw my crutches away and walked out Brilliant. like it was just a just a little error in, in the, the volume and mm. where it was holding me and, and that's the beauty of prosthetics like you can change it so, absolutely yeah. how long after your accident were you walking three months it was yeah. that three yeah, months period yeah that is phenomenal. That's a bloody good effort. That's a that's yeah. a soldier and an athlete mentality right there. Yeah, you want to get back up into it, and I, I was you know under the illusion that it was going to be simple, but it mm. was far from that. And it probably took me maybe a year since getting injured to to be quite proficient on walking. Yeah, you know, I still fall over every now and then, but so does everyone else. So um, <laughs> it, it's not a big issue. And I think you get pretty good at falling as well. You, you sort of tuck your arms in and and let the let the torso take it mate you've you've got a really good attitude about this and you're very open to it and i've seen on your instagram that you even you've still got that kiwi aussie uh yeah, yeah. take the piss out of yourself type attitude and there's some jokes on there about your stump and a bottle of uh wine that was called stump something and stump jump yeah stump it's, jump. It's good drop that <laughs> and uh sitting on airplanes that have given you leg room and you're like awesome but i've got no legs to fill the space you know, that, that, that kind of mentality. But, and we'll talk about your Paralympics career now, but why, why do you believe that this has happened to you? Hmm. I'm, I'm not sure. I think the... Well, I don't think I've ever been asked this question. But uh, the opportunity that it's given me, and, you know, I wasn't... I didn't intend for this to happen at all and I think if there is a higher order that you know chose me to to to, to have this happen I think yeah, I'm I'm not a very religious person so I probably can't look into it too much myself but I think you know taking the opportunity that that is that it is and capitalizing on it all of them as they come up and you know I, I don't go out of my way to chase a lot of things and think the things that I chase I have to work really hard at and like going to the Paralympics and, and being fit and, and healthy and, and you know, eating right. I think that they're, they're all things that a lot of people do a little bit of and, and some people do a lot of and, and that I think that's a big, the big difference in, in their ability to, to perform at a physical level but I, I'm not too sure why it was me and sometimes you know especially in those first initial stages like I did think, you know, why me? But if I hunkered down and, and sat on that particular question, I think you'd be forever looking at the situation prior to it and you'd start pointing the finger at people in situations and shoulda, woulda, coulda and what ifs. And I think if you you hunker down in that area, you're not looking ahead and you're not looking at what's possible. And like I was saying, your know, opportunities that, that pop up and you probably wouldn't take them because you're too you know, focused on, on the negative of the situation. Exactly. And that's that, that powerful mindset shift that you've created that's got you through. And it sounds like it was innate within you. How much of the, not necessarily just that mindset of shifting to what's possible, but 
even the the pain that you've experienced and that experience of what you have been through how much of that comes into everyday life in terms of when there's a challenge and you can just reflect and just go now i've got this or actually how much does it play out in your sport because it's a freaking tough sport paddling on the water how much are you in pain sometimes you hit lactate and then you just think fuck come on mate you've been through harder than this you've got this yeah i think it's funny how an athlete sees pain and sees how they can use it to make them better but you know in everyday life you know it's a little bit more difficult to do things you know cooking I have to go back to my room and put on my legs because being in a wheelchair is extremely difficult trying to cook and it can be a little bit dangerous and I put my my hands up to to everyone that, that, that gets around in a wheelchair because it is tough and you know the world is getting better with accessibility but you know prosthetics just make it so much easier and you, know, you think you know what if I could do this or you know I'm, I'm planning a honeymoon at the moment as well and you know we're going down to Tassie and you know all the things to do down there like bushwalking I'm like oh, I don't know if I can do 5k's that's that's a long way but at the same time I would love to be able to do that but using pain I think is a perspective of you know where you're where you can put yourself and, and how much discomfort you can take before it becomes too much and mm. a lot of people get quite comfortable in their lifestyle and, and don't challenge themselves and push themselves in areas and and sports one of the areas where we can all do do that and push ourselves and you know sport for me has given me this focus and this sort of ability to to have a goal in the morning and, and or the day I should say and you know it helps you sort of continually improve yourself I think and it, you know especially in a physical way but um, also in a mental way because I I honestly believe is the reason why I've avoided maybe not avoided I've been lucky to not have any mental health issues uh, or post-traumatic stress as they call it so you haven't experienced any of the post-traumatic stress no no and I think I, I honestly believe it's because I've had a goal and mm. and, and it's been a, a a physical goal and that you know we all know that the the positive benefits of being healthy and active and you know getting out there and doing your 30 minutes you know, minimum exercise a day and the endorphins that that releases and provides you with a little bit more energy it's weird because you know you're going out there and spending more energy but actually when you f- get after that and, and finish it you, you feel amazing so you feel more motivated and I think it's you know the the whole reason why I've been able to you know step around or sidestep the, the whole mental health issues mm, brilliant and not to take away from uh, the challenge that would have taken you to get to the Paralympics but you said to the blokes when you've had your legs blown off, 20 minutes later, you said, you'll see me in the Paralympics. And the whole world saw you in the Paralympics in Rio in 2016. And, you know, that was your debut and it was a, a bloody good debut, but it didn't come easy to get there or to for your results. Tell us just a, in a sort of a brief snapshot of what it was like in that lead up to it and how much that victory meant to you, not just from a personal level, but also the competitor that you were competing against. Yeah, so obviously injured in 2012 and I don't remember, I was just injured just before the Paralympics and I don't remember the Paralympics being on. I had quite a lot of ketamine and morphine running through me and mm. don't remember much of that first three weeks, four weeks in hospital. So that 
I wish I wish I could have remembered it, and I wish I could have watched it. And you know, the, the movement that started with the uh, London Games for the Paralympians and right around the world is is something that is still going now, and, and I hope it's going to snowball and continue to. And the what I saw when I started looking at you know Paralympic sport and what I wanted to do and where I wanted to go, and I wanted to do something that I enjoyed as as a kid and, and as a as a young adult. And that was kayaking and, you know, I dabbled a little bit in swimming and athletics and basketball and archery and all these other sports that were, you know, equally as exciting and and, and fun. But I I just couldn't find myself or couldn't see myself doing it, you know, six days a week, twice a day. I just, I couldn't, I couldn't see it. But when I, when I tried the kayaking or the canoeing as, as uh, as a collective called, it was something I enjoyed and I saw it as this, this challenge because... I had a little bit of skill there already from from my time in, in at school, and I could see that I could improve on it quite quickly. And so I started in it in 2000, right at the end, December 2013. I got a flat down here on the Gold Coast, and yeah, picked up the paddle. And, and initially, it was a an outrigger canoe, so it was a single bladed paddle with no rudder. And I'd never paddled one of these things before, so. It was learning it from scratch. It was difficult. Uh, for the first couple of months, I could barely make the thing go straight. It's seven and a half metres long, so it takes a bit of getting getting used to in terms of its ability to, to be affected by the conditions. Wind is probably its biggest issue. I had a really good coach, and, and she uh, you know, taught me really well, and I was actually at the same club as the current Australian rep in that, that event. And I was learning from him, and one day he just like, oh, you know, try this type of paddle stroke. And I tried it, and it... It like immediately made a difference in my turning and the ability to make it go straight. I was like, okay, cool, I've got this now. And uh, that was probably his downfall, I think. <laughs> he, sh- he shouldn't have told me. But I went off to Moscow that year and, and won the World Championships. And it was a very, very fast track, so I'm not going to take any claim on the, 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 the time that I, that I did. But I, I was you know, very fortunate to, to get there and, and have the ability to, to make it go quick and I think there was like five world records set there, set in Moscow. So we had really good conditions. But then in 2015, in February 2015, so some like five months after the event, the International Paralympic Committee took away the the V1, the Outrigger Canoe event that I was 100% committed to, uh, and swapped it for the the kayak, uh, the K1, and. To which I was a little bit heartbroken in because, you know, I'd put so much time and effort into this particular sport and, you know, I hadn't put in as much as some other people had. But, you know, a lot of people are invested in into one event and if they change it in the year of a qualifying event, mm. it is pretty much like pulling the carpet out from underneath you. So, you know, countries invest a lot of money in their athletes, their, their sports science, all the recovery and, and not, not to mention the time people um, that are committed to it as well as the athletes. So... For them to do that, and I understand why they did it. It was just a classification process, and my classification's right in the middle. So if someone was to be classed in the top, so KL3 they call it, I was KL2, and then there's KL1, which is the lowest uh, ability dis- disability. And if someone was to move, they'd then go from kayak to V1, and because it's in the middle, they'd have to completely change, and that would almost make them uh, unable to mm-hmm. even compete, being a qualifying year. and. I just wish they had done it at a different time, but that's the way it goes. And I think that put a bit of spark in me. It made me sort of aggressively 
active in, in my pursuit. So, how long did you sit on I Wish before you changed it to a spark of? Oh, probably one day. I, okay. I got the phone call on sun, Sunday night from the coach saying this is what happened, and I rocked up to training the next morning and jumped in the V1, the, the outrigger, and. I remember pulling into the the beach after the session. I just wanted to get out and just smash my boat, my paddle. I was I was pretty angry. I just ordered two new boats, and yeah, you know, I was I was not not I was probably visibly okay, but internally I was I was quite conflicted. So, but and then that afternoon, I, I went Monday afternoon. I got in the kayak, uh, sprint kayak, which I'd done once or twice, but not to the not to you know not to go far or anything like that. Just go around and around the bay. And I remember the coach was like, right, well, this is what we've got to do. We've got to do like four sessions a day just to get your balance right because these, these kayaks are not forgiving. They will they'll tip you out any second. You, you sort of get complacent with them. And, and even you see like world champions and I think Ken Wallace and Lockie Tame fell out of their kayak in, in Germany to World Cup once at the start gate just because they were being a bit complacent and mm. leant the wrong way and over you go. And it happens so fast that you can't catch it. And most of the time you can't roll them back up because you've got an open cockpit and they just fall full of water. So yeah, four, four sessions a day and uh, just to get right because I had national qualifying within three weeks and I managed to, to make the cut, thankfully, and it allowed me to keep focusing. I didn't have any sort of setback. It was a setback, but it wasn't like a, you're not going overseas this year to qualify because you didn't make the cut. It was, you know, okay, we've, you've got the benchmark, right? Let's let's go, let's continue on, and mm. I progressively got better and better. And you know, that was 2015. Got second against uh, a formidable athlete named Marcus Miniswoboda from Austria um, in in 2015 World Champs in Milan. He he got his sixth World Champion medal in that event, and uh, still to this day is the like the most most world champs um, someone's uh, achieved it in that one given event 200 meter event so it's over very fast and he's, he's a little bit shorter than me but uh, just as stocky so he's got a good weight to strength ratio and he has an amazing start and that's where every time he'll beat me out of the gate even still and um, he's someone that I look up to in, in kayaking because you know he's committed and kept going and going and going and um, he's still there now so he just missed out on a medal last year which you know it'll, I think that might ignite him a bit more so and he was he competed against the able bods in the under 23 world champs didn't that's he? correct at amputee Yep. Like he yeah, he, world class. yeah, in a K2 with, with another athlete mm. and he, he's got amazing form and um, he's extremely powerful but and uh, he, he's you know, one of those athletes that pretty much gave way and sort of breaking ice uh, in order to get the Paracanoe event into the Paralympics. Mm, brilliant. So let's fast forward then to the Paralympics in Rio and you're racing uh, against him and who has won the most world championship medals. Yeah, Rio is an amazing place. And, you know, where we were competing, it was like right under the Christ Redeemer statue and Lagoa Rodriguez and, and Eponema, which is, you know, a very uh, iconic location. And, you know, the first heat, uh, we were split because I got second and he gets first. And that's generally the way uh, heats are sort of done at a competition from the previous event. 
and uh, I, I was just taking in the atmosphere and enjoying it and, and wasn't really paying attention to the start caller and, and missed miss the start. I was kind of ready, but I wasn't ready and I had an abysmal start, but we all had really bad starts. I think we we're taking it in the, the atmosphere and fairly right conditions, so I had pretty much no excuse to what I, for what, I, what happened and what I did, So, especially my time. But uh, I managed to, to get through to the final in that race and, and then I lined up the next day for the final and me and me and Marcus are next to each other and he had another athlete uh, from Great Britain Nick Biden he's also a, a combat engineer from Afghanistan oh, right. um, and we're, we're and he he'd got a pretty good time uh, in his heat and we lined up and I was extremely nervous in the warm-up but then we get when you get into this this TV area or the TV zone it's like 50 meters before the start gate and it's where like they go along the lanes and like this is so and so this is so and so and this is so and so from wherever all my nerves went away so you know I was I was very focused on what what needed to be done and, and rectify my my issue from the day before so lined up and, and had a pretty good start but obviously Marcus being as strong as he is here he had a ripper start and he's about half a boat length ahead of me the first 50 meters done can I just rewind yeah. I just think there's a really good thing for us to pick up on there so you were really really nervous and then it flipped to your nerves dropped and you said you're focused so when you were really really nervous were you thinking more of an outcome and thinking about other things and then to drop the nerves focus on process as opposed I think, to outcome? yeah I think that's exactly what happened mm. I yeah you get closer and closer to the start gate you're like okay yeah this is this is real this is going to happen and, and I need to do this 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 to to execute this well and I think if if you are nervous like that's I think for me anyway that I think that this is that's the way you overcome and you start to think about like, what did your coach say about this what did what did you feel like when you nailed these starts really? in the past and where you know how do you envisage this happening you can, can you envisage the or visualize the, the gate going down because in, in kayaking uh, the people that don't know there's a bucket gate that sort of sits just at water level just above water level it's got a little light on it and it's on a big uh, like frame underwater and ready, set, and, and go. The light goes green, and the, the buckets flick underwater really fast. And and trying to line your boat up with that and the angle, because you're obviously paddling on one side first, and quite a lot of power goes down, and the boat slides a little bit. And yeah, and, and trying to get that nice and sharp and fast in your reaction time, and and trying to nail that process down mm-hmm. in your head. That's why I rewound to that because yeah. I find that working with athletes my whole career, but also now people outside of sport that a lot of their um, nervousness or anxiety it plays out as anxiousness for people is when they're really thinking about things in the future that haven't even happened they're really worried about all these outcomes and then when we can bring them back to well let's focus on the required task at hand right now let's focus on what you need to do right now and processes yeah yeah i think don't think too big a picture especially when you're trying to execute something precisely Mm -hmm. i think it has to be what matters right there and then and, and what you can do to influence that piece of your race and a start for being a sprint kayaker 200 meters especially the start is so crucial mm. um, and if you if you mess that up yeah you're so take us know. back to that start or the you, yeah so you're saying you know I was, I was listening to the starter calling it properly and, and listening to him and i could hear the crowd because i had a heap of drunk mates in the in the crowd and, and they were going <laughs> off at only 9 30 in the morning but they're having a grand old time <laughs> 
Kiwi mates, of course, not Aussie uh, mates. No, they no. wouldn't be like that. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, uh, some of the army mates who, who were with me when I got injured, they oh, came brilliant. over, and um, some schoolmates that surprised me over there, and, and then also obviously family and, and a few other friends mm. as well. So it was it was really cool, and not to mention you know everyone else uh, that was that was a part of it. You know, some of my teammates from other sports were there, and. It was a great, great sort of outcome, and, and you know, having them, having them there, you know, made me made me work even harder. So, yeah, and, and I just sort of zoned in on this, the start, and, and executed it really well. And, and like I was saying before, Marcus, you know, had a, had a wicked start, and you know, he's always been better than me. And, and I, it's somewhere that I've tried to improve as much as I can. It's just it's such a hard thing to execute well, especially in a race situation, because there's a lot, little bit more weighing on it. Training wise, I can generally get them really well because there's no weight on it. There's no, yeah, it's just training. It's really hard to replicate race mm. um, race situations. So, getting that that down pat and, and getting out of the gate, you know, had a good good sort of rhythm. And I remember sort of seeing Marcus. I think he was on my left and him shoot out and uh, ahead at like 50 meters, half a boat length, and then. A hundred meters were like neck and neck, so I'd caught up a little bit, but and I, I not in my mind, but well, sub subconsciously, I think I was like, okay, yeah, I know, I know my strength, and this is where I I can pull through here because every time I race, I'm generally not first for the first hundred meters. I'm either fourth or, or third or something like that, and then in the second half of my race, I just come through. I have a bit more, bit more of a ticker. And me and uh, I think that's you know down to the, the, the style of um, training in which the coaches sort of give us the um, you know, focusing on the, the lactate and dealing with that and also keeping the power on and and reminding that technique areas where where you can improve or, or maintain uh, the power and, and um, I just remember the words from my coach they all out in front out in front out in front because the longer you get that stroke the more water you're going to pull so. And like 50 meters to go, I couldn't see anyone anymore. And I was like, oh, I, hope, I hope the race is still going. And I uh, crossed the line and I sort of looked over my shoulder and I, I uh, saw that, I, that I'd, I'd won. I didn't know by how much, obviously. I didn't have a watch or a, the, couldn't see the clock. And it was, it was a weird feeling. I, I f- was expecting, you know, celebration and excitement and, and joy and happiness. But, but what, what I felt was like this huge wave of relief just like sweep over me. And um, it was, was one thing I wasn't expecting. I was, you know, like I said, expecting the excitement and, and happiness. But what it was is just like this, thank fuck, that just happened. Like Brilliant. I, I didn't feel much pressure leading up to, you know, the last sort of four years, but I felt as though that feeling was that and I was unaware of it and it might have been mild, but it was all, it was so intense at that mm. moment that it was just like this wave that came over me and, you know, I had a little like, think, you know, this is pretty cool and I'd done it and I didn't really know how to think about it at the time because, you know, the, the weight of what I'd just done it doesn't didn't doesn't really come until you're like laying in bed that night reflecting on on what you'd achieved and whatnot so yeah cross across the line and loop back around and i went over to, to marcus as he crossed the line second to me and, and i went over to him there's a really great photo of me and him sort of my arm around him 
and I just I just said to him like you know you're an amazing athlete and because I could see he was gutted I said you're an amazing athlete and you know the sport would, wouldn't be here without you and and the, the sport's not the same without you so just Brilliant. yeah so I, I felt I really did feel for him because he had so much pressure from his country and and you know all those people that mm-hmm. invested in him and you know someone has to come second and someone's got to come last and someone's got to come first and it was just the way it went for me so that's the beautiful brutality of sport yeah, really it is, isn't it yeah yeah and uh, we're about to go through that process again with um qualifying yeah, yeah. well i was just gonna say so does that pressure now feel like it's on you for is tokyo 2020 it's creeping up it's next year yeah it, yeah it is um we've got qualifying this year and i think for me i will feel a little bit more pressure because of past performances and I've not been beaten internationally uh, in my events yet, so or since that 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 time. So having having that on me, I think, is something that you almost feel a target on your back. But at the same time, you and there's this sort of cliche comment of you know what are you doing that your your opponents mm. are not and. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm doing enough. I'm not sure if I'm doing too much. But you just got to make sure that every day you feel like you've achieved something in which could be ahead. And if you feel confident in what you're doing at the moment, it, it, it'll give you confidence leading into that race on that day. So, and, and you really don't know what people are up to until you actually race against them because you can't compare my race from last weekend to. Mark, or actually Scott Mertlew, who's, who's second now from New Zealand, his race this weekend because he's got Oceana Champs. Like, I can't compare that because I'm not there. So many there. variables as well. Yeah, we had some really tough headwind in, in Sydney last weekend. So mm-hmm. comparing that race to, to his one will be very difficult. But uh, I, I understand that he's, he, he's about the same height as me, probably not quite as big. And, and he's, again, another fast starter. But... Uh, and he's a great guy and, and I actually went through the trials with, with New Zealand and he was there watching me do it. So so why are you competing for Australia to clear for everyone? Yeah, so I obviously went through the process with New Zealand Paralympics and, and they said, yep, 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 you're good. But because I was living here and I was still in the, the Defence Force at the time and, and they said that they'd support me. In the Australian Defence Force? Yeah, that's correct, yeah. They said they'd support me in my pursuit of the Paralympic. Uh, games and it was something that I couldn't leave Australia for and as much as I wanted to 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 compete for New Zealand I knew that everything I did in Australia I would have to fund and I would have to organize and the more and more I looked at it the more it became a burden that I, I just couldn't put on myself and perform so and it's a decision that I do not regret whatsoever. You know, I'm, I'm very grateful for the support and the, the program in which Paddle Australia and, and the Paralympic Committee of, uh, I should say Paralympics Australia now, they've changed the name, ha- have established and, and supported uh, myself uh, moving forward as you know, one I don't think I'd get in, in Australia and New Zealand, mainly because it's just a smaller country. It just, mm. um, and, and that they are a lot more ruthless on their performance criterias mainly because they don't have the resources like Australia does. Mm. And you know, with the announcement of the government last week adding you know, that $12 million to our, or $8 million to our budget for, for Tokyo. Government. Yeah, the yeah. Australian government. Really? I, I don't often hear about those commitments from New Zealand government. And, and that's unfortunate for all mm. the people in the Paralympics team for New Zealand. But it's one, one thing that I'm, I'm not 
not even second guessing myself now. I'm quite proudly competing for Australia. Of course you are. (laughs) (laughs) Mate, we could talk for a lot longer. We've already heard an immense amount of value from you. There's so many things that I could have dived into, but there's a few questions I want to ask uh, that I ask all my guests. But even before we get to that, I want to ask you, How's, uh, how's Prince Harry to hang out with? I've never had anyone yeah. on this podcast that's hung out with Prince Harry. Prince Harry is an interesting man, although he's quite similar to me. I okay. Think. I got to be his little like Invictus Games chauffeur. I got to hang out with him in 2017 when he's here doing some, um, some venue tours for the Invictus Games uh, in Sydney last year and got to spend a bit more you know, intimate time with him. And, and he's, he's very similar to me, you know, just talks about normal things and likes rugby and at the time the uh the british irish lawrence were touring in new zealand and i was giving him stick about losing to the blues uh, the auckland rugby team and <laughs> likes a bit of banter and you know, he's he's very easy going and, and you know, he understands you know most veterans and, and what they've been through and and how we we sort of think and operate in ourselves so for him to be that sort of person and be that champion for you know the wounded injured ill uh, service men and women and their families as well it's he's a great advocate yeah it's absolutely amazing what he's supporting there with the invictus games it's just it's gold for the ripple effect of that is phenomenal yeah it really is there's uh, a lot of benefits that come from it and you know like myself going through the sport and being an advocate for, for you know how sport can be such a, a great medicine uh, mm. for, for mental health and, and also you know physical injuries is you know, it's nice to have that highlighted from him yeah absolutely mate before we wrap up i want to ask you what do you believe is good action for people to take to be more impactful in their lives and in their communities hmm i think you know Seeing something around your uh, your community that you can be involved in, uh, and you know, jumping in, I guess, and it doesn't have to be a hundred percent. You could you could jump in a little bit and, and help out where you can and volunteer. It, it to, to give is a great feeling and it's a a nice uh, way to to feel fulfilled. And you know, we often hear about you know people winning lotto and, and being you know millionaires and billionaires, and and it's I think you know they get a lot of value out of, of contributing to. Uh, to society and the community around them and, and it, you, can, you can improve the place especially with that mentality yeah absolutely well said where can we find you on uh, social media the instagram tag is that the best place yeah yeah i um have a pretty active instagram so that's just kurt mcgrath or at kurt mcgrath and then on facebook also is Curtis mcgrath athlete i believe it is i do have twitter but i'm, I'm really useless on the twitter because it just moves too fast for me yeah. <laughs> i'll link all that up in the show notes thank you and how can i and the listeners help you on your journey mate i think just getting on board with the paralympic movement you know we've got a really amazing amount of talent within our team and supporting us when we're over and we're going to be very fortunate here in australia to be on a very similar timeline time zone to tokyo and and to to get on board and and support us and and look for your favorites and and also cheer for the people that come in last and, and and might not even compete but if they can just send out a bit of um, support as uh, it goes a long, long way. Curtis, you're a legend. Your humble approach to life after adversity is inspiring, a world of possibility and belief for everyone. Keep shining your impactful light to the world, my man. Thank you very much. Cheers. Thanks, legend. Cheers. There you go, guys. What a genuine 
humble legend with such an empowering story and gift to the world. Make sure you start following Curtis online and as Curtis said how we can help him on his journey, make sure you get behind the whole Paralympic movement. Notice he didn't say behind his Paralympic campaign, but the whole Paralympic movement. You can follow everything from the Paralympics Australia website at paralympic.org.au and funnel into the wide world web and social media accounts of all the athletes from that website. Tokyo 2020 Paralympics are going to be epic, so you're going to want to get on board. And actually, just as I said that, I realized this will be the first Paralympics since Beijing 2008 that I won't be going to as a staff member. Maybe I'll be one of those loud fans in the stands that Curtis spoke about. (laughs) Keep being legends, all of you. And as always, remember... This is your life journey, your life of impact.